always great when you get ready to preach and sit through the worship in the morning or the afternoon. We're still in that morning thing, that old habit. But. And as the words of the song just fill, fill your heart, at least my heart, um, the whole message has been preached already. Services, church services, where the Holy Spirit is at work. We do our part, we think we plan them. But the Lord draws everything together. And He speaks in a unified message, a unified word. A word fitly spoken, a word that is, uh, it comes in a timely way, in the right time, the right place. I've been so blessed by Reformation Saskatchewan, the conference we just had. Uh, the Lord is, I think, already doing a work of, of renewal, re- reformation in my heart. And, of course, the other word is revival. And we need to pray that everyone who was here who takes just the, the fullness of the gospel back where to their home churches, many of them who are uh, perhaps wanting somewhat in their proclamation of the gospel and their understanding of the, the precious doctrines of grace, that God would greatly empower and encourage and enable our brothers and sisters. This land has never had a national awakening. As I know it's happened in the United States hundreds of years ago. So I'd like to just ask for God's help as we prepare to hear the word. It's as much of a work of God to hear the word as it is for one to preach the word. We can't hear if the Holy Spirit does not give us ears to hear. If we don't, uh, if we aren't enabled, our flesh will fight against hearing this word. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we bow before you. priests could not even enter the temple in the Old Testament when your glory entered there. And yet, and yet here we sit in your presence. Your spirit living within us, your very glory within us and among us. We pray, Father, that as we wait upon you, as we wait to hear your word, Lord, that you would give us attentive hearts, hearts to understand and a will to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.
They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil. Pardon me for this. Good. They proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in his brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies, and they weary themselves committing iniquity. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon a deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Those words are from the mouth of the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 9. And no one understands those words better than Jesus. In the passage we will study today, we will first see him betrayed, then accused, and then denied. That passage from Jeremiah lays before us the depths of wickedness in the human heart that no man can know, but God knows. He sees. He sees to the depths. He sees what is done in secret. He hears what is said in secret. But everything that is covered will be uncovered, and everything that is unseen will be revealed. And God's instrument of doing this are His Word and His Spirit. Our message this afternoon is called, Betrayed, Accused, and Denied. These are the humiliations our Lord Jesus suffered on the way to the greatest humiliation, the greatest emptying of himself on the cross of Calvary as he cried out, heavy with, heavy with the sins of the world. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have five points to move us along through our text, and it is not from Jeremiah, it is from Matthew chapter 26. This is a long narrative, but the text itself is so full of truth. I want to at least go through and examine some of its themes and also make application because as we examine the evil that is in the hearts of men, we're going to see ourselves. The challenge in a message like this is to bring hope, to leave us with anything to rejoice about. Of course, if you know the gospel, you know how it ends. You know about the resurrection of Christ, his ascension, his, his return. You know about all of that, but sometimes the Spirit of God takes us down into the depths of our own hearts. And there is a season of despair. There is a season of anguish and weeping when we come to see, and come to see again, perhaps, what is really in our own hearts. So let's proceed, from, proceed with our message from Matthew chapter 26. 
We'll be covering verses 47 through the end of the chapter. And what we'll do is read each section, and I'll comment and expand on the text. So we'll start with verses 47 through 50. While he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd of swords, with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given him a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then he came up and laid his hands on Jesus and seized him. In these first few verses, we have the reality of a friendly betrayal. That's the first point you can, if you want to follow along. It's a friendly betrayal. Someone who had walked and talked with Jesus, someone who had eaten at the same table, who had listened to his most intimate teachings, who even carried the money bag for Jesus and his disciples, now turns and lift his, lifts his heel against the one with whom he ate bread, just, just as Jesus had prophesied. And he betrays him with a kiss, an intimate expression of friendship and brotherhood. Psalm 2, a psalm that issues a warning to nations that exalt themselves against the Lord and his anointed one, who is Jesus, ends with these words. Kiss the Son, or do homage to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. What kind of condemnation do you think rests upon a man who kisses the Son in false relationship and false loyalty while hiding deceit in his own heart, mocking the word of God and the testimony of Messiah? Now Judas, as we saw in the Gospel of John, was a wicked man. He's one man I know that's going to be in hell, because Scripture says so. And I'm not the one to make the call on that. None of us can make that call on another. The Lord knows those that are His. But in the case of Judas, Scripture is clear about his condemnation. In the book of Jeremiah, God says through the prophet, Faithless or backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Here in our text, Judas, not Judah, but Judas, is being true to his namesake, for he is presumably named after Judah, of the tribe of Judah, which means celebration or praise. When the people of Judah, the praise of God, worshipped the Lord, they drew near. They kissed the sun, so to speak, and did verbal homage to their king. They had the temple in their midst. And yet the Lord tells them repeatedly, more than one place in Scripture, your sacrifices, they mean nothing to me. When you sacrifice a bull, it's like breaking a dog's neck. Your praise is pretense. Your hearts are not circumcised. You have the externals down, but inside, your hearts are far from me. Treacherous Judah. In Hebrew, the word for treacherous means covered. A treacherous person is someone who, who 
presents something other than what really is and connives behind a false face. In our text, treacherous Judas comes to Jesus in the garden under the cover of friendship. We know from the parables of Jesus that there will be many surprised on the day of the Lord. And many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? Did we not cast out demons in your name? There will be many who have made a profession, but their hearts have never changed. That's Judas. There will be many who say that they are friends of God. There will be many who would say that they are in fellowship with their brothers. But the Lord knows their hearts. He sees through the covering. All of us, unless God does a work in our heart, are like Judas. The words we say and the things we do are of only a veneer of righteousness that has no more value to the Lord than filthy rags. Friendly betrayal. Any of you who have experienced betrayal, who have sat across from someone who has expressed loyalty, broken bread with you, then turns and understands you would understand, if that has happened to you, you understand what this is. But here we see that it is the Son of God who is betrayed. Now there's an encounter about to happen. The guards come in and they seize Jesus. There's an altercation between the disciples and the guards. I want you to see this framed in the light of Jesus' statement just a few verses before. The Spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter and James and John couldn't stay awake in the garden as Jesus was pouring his soul out unto death, weeping, sweating as there were, as if, as it were great drops of blood. Peter had professed undying dying loyalty. If everyone else denies you, Lord, I will never deny you. And they fall asleep because their spirit is willing But their flesh is weak. Even though Peter makes this statement, I will never deny you, there's so much flesh in it. He says, I'm up to the task. I can do this. I will go with you. Even if they kill me, I will not deny you. It's a lot of bravado. It's a lot of chest beating. But ultimately, unless the Lord has done a work of grace in our hearts, we will flee when the shepherd is stricken, just as the disciples did. This leads to our second point. Having witnessed a friendly betrayal, I'd like to turn our attention to the feeble weapons we see here in this narrative. There's so much about weapons in this passage. Let's, let's uh, continue reading. And behold, one of those who are with Jesus stretched out his hand. And by the way, we know this is Peter from the other gospel accounts. And he drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all that take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me twelve legions of angels? But how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. There are swords and clubs and probably spears all over this passage. Peter, the same guy who said to Jesus, I will never deny you, now grabs his sword, another act of the flesh. If these people are coming to Jesus, well, I'm going to jump in there and I'm going to stop them. Apparently it hasn't registered with him that the Son of Man must be delivered over to be crucified, even though Jesus has explicitly told him so. So he's going to stop this. He's going to stop the crucifixion of Jesus. Even though he said, I die before I deny you. And emotionally, I get that. He loves Jesus. He wants to defend him. So he comes at this servant named Malchus with a sword. John tells us his name is Malchus. And Jesus rebukes him when, when he cuts this off the servant's ear. He says, put away your sword. You live by the sword. You die by the sword. Peter, you don't get it. This is a whole different kind of battle. What is happening here has been written and prophesied and must happen. The death of Messiah must happen. It has been God's design. It has been my design. Speaking as Jesus here for a moment. It has been my design since before the foundation of the world. I must be delivered over to be crucified. Put away your sword. Pardon me. Put away your sword and stop trying to fight this battle in the flesh. Because there is a sword that vanquishes every sword. And that sword is the word of God. There is a sword that has prevented anyone who has come to me thus far with swords and clubs from seizing me at any time. I was an open target in the temple and they couldn't come get me. You see, when we look into the word of God and we see that there is nothing, we see that there is nothing we can do to thwart the will of God. There is nothing that we can do that can change the plan of God to save sinners and draw his sheep to himself and give life to the dead and breathe life into the dry bones. Any weapon applied against the word of God is flesh. It is feeble and it cannot stand. No weapon can prevail against the weapons of our warfare, which are mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. What are these weapons? The Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. Prayer. Jesus said to the disciples, pray. Pray that you will not enter in temptation. What did they do? They slept, because the flesh is weak. Feeble weapons. Fleshly weapons. When we've got our own agenda, however noble it seems to be in our own hearts, it's like a weapon in our hands. And unless we are submitted to God, that weapon is of the flesh, and that plan will not prosper. So the disciples flee. It's the first step of Peter denying Jesus, which he said he would never do. Now we come to false testimony. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and say and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward, your, your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the Son of God is about to be brought to trial. And let's continue in verse 57. And those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going in, he sat down with the guards to see the end. I realized something as I was reading this. Probably as Matthew is compiling this gospel, and later as Luke is compiling his gospel, and earlier as Mark is compiling his gospel... They are seeing things, at least in part, through the eyes of Peter, who is an eyewitness of these events. And think of the implications of that. He is bearing witness to his own feebleness, to his own weakness, and his own fleeing, and his own denying. The last, the last few chapters of Matthew are as much about the death of Peter as they are about the death of Jesus. As Peter comes to understand the depths of his sin and his utter need for a salvation that is outside of his ability, outside of his agenda, he falls to the ground like a kernel of wheat and dies. Not literally, but his pride and self-reliance dies. Not only must Jesus be crucified, Peter and all who would call Jesus Lord must be crucified with him. As Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I believe Peter finally experienced the fullness of this death and subsequent life in Christ on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given to indwell believers. Before Pentecost, the Spirit of God would come upon Peter and he would say things like, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus would bless him and say that God himself has revealed that to Peter. Then Peter would say something completely off the wall, like there's no way you're going to be put to death, Lord. And then Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I don't see evidence in Peter that he's filled with the Spirit. After Pentecost, you see boldness replace cowardice. Now, sorry for the detour. We were talking about the false testimony. Let's continue in verse 59. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. There had to be some legal standard, and the, they had to, the, the testimonies had to be uh, at least solid. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, that in itself is a misquotation of Jesus. He really said, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it, raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of his body. 
But some people heard what he had said and missed his actual point and mixed it together with their own ideas and they got all lathered up and they went to their leaders and the full fury of the religious establishment was unleashed upon Jesus. They wanted a Messiah other than Jesus. They wanted a different, different good news than the news Jesus was bringing. They wanted their kingdom now and Jesus was not delivering the goods. So these two witnesses came with their false testimony. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? These false witnesses testified against Jesus, but nothing stuck. He was above reproach, a lamb without blemish and without spot. He had no guilt in him. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted, but never sinned. So every accusation against him was false. If you have experienced false accusations, take comfort in the fact that Jesus experienced false accusations. And he said that there is a blessing for those who experience false accusations on account of him. When the Romans persecuted Christians in the first and second centuries, most of those killings would have been, would have been based on a misrepresentation of what the people actually believed. They had no desire to overthrow Caesar. That was one of the, the uh, accusations against Jesus. They had instructions in their own documents to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And that the political powers that exist are ordained by God so that Christ and Christians are to obey them. Romans 13. And Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, acknowledging that he was a king, but of a different kind of kingdom altogether, in a different realm than the Roman Empire. Nevertheless, the early Christians were killed as traitors. So there's false testimony against the Son of God. And Jesus annoys his prosecutors by remaining silent and declining to respond to these things. But now we come to a moment of infuriating truth. That's the, fifth, the fourth point here, infuriating truth. Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is the elephant in the room. The fact that Jesus has previously uttered with authority, before Abraham was, I am, claiming the divine name as his own, the self-existent name of God, I am. The Gospel of John goes into great detail of how Jesus declared his unity with the Father. They accused him of making himself equal with God, and of course there was no need for him to do that because he truly was God. The Word made flesh, the exegesis of the divine nature. Christ's claim to deity is the thing that offended the ears of his accusers more than anything else. He did not meet their expectations of Messiah, yet he claimed to be deity, to be one with the Father. They're ignorant of something that was veiled in their own scriptures, but it is present. The law and the prophets and the writings testify of Jesus, and for those who have ears to hear, it is revealed, but these men have not received it. They are dull of hearing, and their hearts are hard. Listen to Jesus' response to the high priest who is interrogating him. Jesus said to him, 
You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. If he could have said anything more likely to incriminate himself at that point, I don't know what it was. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Now the high priest says to his counsel, What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophet, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? He's blindfolded. We see the unleashing of anger and resentment coming against Jesus as he proclaims the infuriating truth about himself. And we must understand that it all had to happen. It had to happen that they would reject him. Isaiah 53 had to happen. He had to be despised by his own people as one from whom they hid their face. It had to happen. It was the Father's will to crush him. The blood, sweat, and tears of Gethsemane was the beginning of the crushing, but the crushing continues and culminates in the cry from the cross, Why have you forsaken me? But also in the loud shout of victory, It is finished. It's done. It wasn't a whisper. He cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. God had to die as a man in order to forgive sin, in order to give sniveling, scared disciples a backbone so that they could go to the ends of the earth with the gospel and endure tortures very like the tortures that Jesus endured on the cross. A certain tradition asserts that Peter himself was crucified. Excuse me. You see, something changed in Peter between now and the time he died. The man who ran from the cross would so embrace the mind of Christ that he would, like Christ, become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It was the indwelling presence of the living God that regenerated him and gave him a new life and a new heart. The truth is that Jesus, pardon me, the truth, that Jesus, the Son of God, became a man and died in the place of sinners and was raised again is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. In other words, everybody finds something wrong with that. The only way to understand this truth and the only way to receive it is if the Lord God himself gives us the faith. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And that faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. You can see that Peter in the days leading up to Calvary has been trying so hard 
to embrace the message of the cross. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows about all that he's done. He's heard him talk about the cross. He's seen the miracles. He's seen the compassion. He's even seen the wisdom of his teaching. But watch what happens as Peter observes the trial of Jesus. He observes from a safe distance, straining his ears to to hear what's being said, monitoring the human telegraph of people gathered in the courtyard, waiting to see what is to become of Jesus. What we are about to witness is a fearful denial. That's our fifth point, fearful denial. We find it in verses 69 to 75. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came up and said, just a little girl, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean, but he denied them, denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. That's denial number one. Remember, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times? And when he went out, and when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man is this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So the first denial is simple disassociation. The second is, I swear. And I don't know what he swore by, but he swore. I don't know him. I don't know the man. So the first, and after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Weren't many Galileans hanging around, I guess, at, at, in Jerusalem. I don't know the man. Oh, missed an important part there. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. May God strike me dead if I'm not telling the truth. I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. I asked you, brothers and sisters, what separates this man from Judas? What is the difference between the heart and nature of Peter and the heart and nature of Judas? And the answer, the biblical answer is nothing. There is nothing, none righteous. No, not one. There is none that seeks after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The difference is here, not something found in either man. The difference here is the grace of God. God reaching down to save the one that he has called to himself, loving him with an everlasting love, holding him secure as a disciple, as a son, and as a saint. While the council questioned Jesus, Peter stood out in the courtyard and denied his Lord three times. He invoked curses upon himself. Out of his instinct for self-preservation. Do you know how many Christians through the ages have been confronted with situations like Peter's? Renounce your faith or die. Turn your back on Jesus or die. Say that Jesus is not God or die. It's happening right now in Islamic countries. And the vast majority of Christians confronted with such things have yielded themselves to death. Some, though, some have denied the Lord. 
Now I want, to, I want us to grasp the depths of grief that Peter is feeling at this point. I want to take you back to Matthew chapter 10. And I want us to understand why Peter went out and wept bitterly. Matthew 10 verses 28 to 33. Jesus is about to send his disciples. If you want that reference, I hear pages flipping. Matthew 10 verses 28 to 33. Jesus was about to send his disciples out on a short trial run of the ministry that they will be doing after he ascends to heaven. He's giving them instructions and he's letting them know it's going to be rough. He gives them marching orders. So listen to these marching orders starting in verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Right now, Peter's very concerned about the people who can kill the body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. He's talking to his disciples, and he's assuring them that God knows the number of hairs on their head. He is going to take care of them, no matter what comes against them. He will watch over them, and death, should they die in his service, and they all would die eventually, but some would die an untimely death, will not be meaningless. He knows when the sparrow dies, how much more precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. If you want a reference for that, it's in Psalm 116. Now listen as Jesus continues. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And here comes the kicker for Peter. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Don't you think those words rang in Peter's ears the moment that rooster crowed? I will never deny you. I will never deny you. And then the curses and the oath. I don't even know the man. Oh, the anguish. He has denied his Lord. And now the only thought in his mind is, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now is Jesus lying? Because we know that Jesus later restored Peter. Is Jesus lying about this? Does he go back on his word? Should we assume that that particular scripture doesn't really mean what it says? Of course he isn't lying. I believe Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the context of eternity. As those who are his. As those who are still functioning as mere men, not yet endued with the power of the Holy Spirit through regeneration. They are not yet born again. Now, and I realize that's a controversial statement, and I've gotten flack for it in the past, but I don't think that Peter is born again at this point. For no, yes, predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, yes, called, yes, 
And as far as eternity is concerned, he is also justified and glorified. But in the moment of time when he denied Jesus, he was still unregenerate. A servant of Christ, yes. The sovereign wind of the Spirit had not yet rushed in upon him and given him a new life, a new nature, and a new heart. I think that before the giving of the Holy Spirit, the actual regeneration of the heart that we know today was not the same. People were saved by grace through faith in a promise that they did not yet fully understand. God supernaturally kept them. He granted repentance. He granted temporary covering for their sins through sacrifices. And somehow, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and after the Holy Spirit was given, the blood of the one true sacrifice for sin was retroactively applied to them. The blood of the one true Lamb was retroactively sprinkled on the doorposts of their heart, and they were saved from the wrath of God so justly deserved by unbelievers. Now when the Spirit of God comes into Peter on the day of Pentecost, takes up residence in him, seals him for the day of redemption, and when Peter receives the witness of the Holy Spirit that he is a son of God, (laughs) he's already received the witness through the Holy Spirit that Christ is the Son of God. But there's a witness of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. At that point, Peter cannot deny Jesus. In the flesh, there is not a soul in this room that would not deny Jesus. The way out of our fearfulness, our fickleness, doesn't come from flesh and blood. It does come from doesn't come from our resolve, our commitment, or our rash vows. I will de- never, never deny you. Or I, excuse me, I rededicate my life to you again, or whatever it may be. It comes from Christ in us, and us in Christ. This is the Holy Spirit manifesting the power and glory, the victory of Jesus through us. You know, I can hardly preach through this without going to the end, to that moment where Peter is restored. It's in the Gospel of John. That particular transaction, in fact, is only recorded in the Gospel of John, so I'm not going to cover the whole thing here. But we do see evidence of Peter's restoration in the book of Acts. I don't know why I'm not going to John, but Acts, but I have to kind of compromise a little here on time. On the day of Pentecost, Peter delivers a barn burner sermon, sermon that says things that could get him killed. You can read it in Acts chapter 2, after he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 4, he says some more things that could get him killed. And then when he's confronted by the same council that interrogated Jesus in our passage today, he says, we ought to, be, we ought to obey God rather than man. Does that sound like a different guy to you? If God says, preach, I'm going to preach, nothing can stop him once God gets a hold of him. And when he is born again by the Spirit through the living, enduring Word of God. Now, did he have his struggles afterwards? Of course. As children of God, we continue to wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Luther threw an inkwell at the devil, I believe. Am I correct about that? <laughs> uh, but the hope 
and assurance. I missed a line here. This struggle continues until we meet Jesus. But the hope and assurance that we have as Jesus, as believers, pardon me, is he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Christ will win. Christ has won. His work of redemption is finished. But his work of intercession and sanctification, his priesthood continues and will not fail. Our slips into sin are no match for the power and the blood of Christ, power of the blood of Christ, and no match for the intercession of our blessed high priest and mediator, Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is because of the shed blood and because of the mediation and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Do you know this great high priest? Do you know this sacrificial lamb? Do you know the king of kings? I'm not asking you if you know about him, or even if you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you know him in such a way that you trust him to forgive your sins, to save you, and to keep you from falling, and to present you before his glorious presence, without fault, and with great joy? If Christ's call is upon your heart right now, don't despise it. You're wasting your energy. Listen to him. Come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Let's, uh, let's just pray before we go into our communion service. Lord, I pray that your words would ring in our hearts and in our ears. And I pray, Father, that you would show us our our sin. That even today, if there's one here that does not fully trust in you, that you would open your hearts, that you would give them faith so that they can believe, so that they can trust, and so that they will not deny you and cannot deny you. We thank you that You have ordained this message today as much as you have ordained any event in history. But you are that great of a God. And we ask now as we visually present the truth that we have just heard in the symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ that all who our repentant sinners would receive this feast with joy, with thanksgiving, and with hope because of what Jesus has accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen.